Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio. This is your host, Nick Augustine. The show is produced by ProServe Public Relations, a business development public relations firm serving law and finance professionals. We work hard to bring you new and pragmatic content on both our weekly shows. At Tuesdays at 4 o'clock Central, we bring you Law Talk Radio, and at Thursdays, we broadcast the Money Talk Radio program. Also at 4 o'clock Central, of course, there are times when we do bring you shows uh, during different hours, such as this morning. Uh, we're coming to you from 10 a.m. Central here with our guest, Donna Adler. Uh, our show today is Civil Liberties Examined Post-9-11. Again, with Donna Adler, this is part four in our series. Chicago civil rights attorney Donna Adler walks us through the status of civil liberties in the U.S. following September 11, 2001 attacks. Our fourth show of the 10-part series examines the 9-11 Commission report. Actually, we're going to be uh, talking today a little bit about Al-Qaeda. Um, having practiced law for over 25 years, Chicago attorney Donna Adler has built her career incorporating education and service to local professional and business communities. Donna's outreach includes advising on legal issues in several practice areas, including, without limit, General and general and civil and commercial litigation, criminal defense and administrative law, and Donna Adler's office is located in DuPage County, Illinois, in uh, the town of Oakbrook Terrace. Her website, and I will get this right this time, is www.donnamadlerlawllc.com. There we go, donnamadlerlawllc.com. <laughs> okay. We want to welcome our callers this afternoon. If you have a question, you can always call in. Of course, our show is neutral, and your objectives and counterpoints are always welcome. Telephone number to dial in, 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732. Option one for the caller queue. By way of short disclaimer, this is a general information program. The advice shared on our show does not constitute professional advice. Communication with attorneys and finance professionals on our shows does not give rise to professional relationships. ProServe Public Relations does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. And finally, all callers are confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Uh, as far as upcoming events, please do send us your events. ProServe PR is a PR and consulting uh, public relations consulting firm serving law and finance industry professionals, and we often engage in programming and event promotion. So if you want to host an industry programming or events, let us know. We can help you. Also, if you have an event all ready to go and you want to advertise that on our show, you can certainly uh, send us your events, and through our proprietary network of resources, we'll send that message out to our people and attract more attention to your event. Um, our subject matter again for today's show, this is episode four in a series of at least ten shows devoted to the impact on civil liberties of laws passed since 9-11-2001 to enhance national security. Attorney Donna M. Adler again leads us through chronologically uh, through the events from September 11th and the 9-11 Commission Report through several major pieces of legislation in this series, such as the Homeland Security Act, the Patriot Act, Patriot II, the Military Commissions Act, and a number of laws directed to enhancing national capacity to fight terrorism. Today we're going to look a little bit at Al-Qaeda was able to get off the ground. Uh, we're going to ask what we knew about Al-Qaeda activity before 9-11 and uh, what were we doing with all this intelligence. Now, uh, of course, this is show number four. You can find the earlier shows on uh, the Law Talk radio page on Facebook. You can also find them, uh, the link to the uh, Law Talk radio main site through our provider blog talk radio. 
Radio has all those shows listed there, and you can search uh, by Donna's name and find those shows. So, uh, without further ado, I welcome my guest, Donna Adler. Hi, Nick. It's always great to be here. Today, I think that what we're going to concentrate on is how Al-Qaeda rose to prominence. Um, Many people still don't know a whole lot about that organization. Of course, there have been many opportunities to... Um, to read, and people can read the 9-11 Commission report themselves, but what we've been trying to do in this series is is present parts of that report so that uh, they would be in the public ear before we began talking about um, legislation, and we'll do that several shows down the line. Um, When we finished with uh, the discussion and presentation of um, the 9-11 Commission report and some of its most important aspects, today what I'd like to do is, as I said, talk about how Al-Qaeda rose to prominence. Um, in February of 1998, um, there was a fatwa issued by um, by Osama bin Laden, and um, that's an interpretation of Islamic law, usually by respect, respected Islamic authority. But bin Laden, of course, was not such an authority. Nonetheless, he issued this um, fatwa asking for every Muslim anywhere, um, saying it was the individual duty for every Muslim who could do it in any country in which it was possible to do it to um, to kill Americans. Uh, what we're going to try to do is figure out the lead-up to that. Okay, what um, what inspired that fatwa? What led up to it? How did things get, uh, get to that point? Bin Laden had been singling the U- U.S. out as a target since 1992. I think that's a significant date in... Um, in, in his development as a, as a terrorist, and we'll see uh, what was actually behind that. Um, and his plans to attack the U.S. continued to develop throughout the 90s. Let's keep these two dates in mind. 1992, that's when he began singling the U.S. out. And then 1998, with this, this fatwa calling for the murder of Americans anywhere in the world by any Muslim who could do it. Uh, before we get to exactly how things got that way, it might be helpful to look at um, who bin Laden was as a Muslim. He was certainly an Islamicist extremist. Whether it can be said that he was, um, whether it can be said that he um, was a religious man is another issue, and we won't even get to that. I think anyone who calls for the mass murder of uh, people might have a problem maintaining. Um, that kind of claim. However, uh, we've seen before in the, in the history of Western civilization and the history of the world that these two things sometimes um, go hand in hand as far as claims are concerned. Um, people may not know a whole lot about Islam. There are two basic divisions. There is one basic division within Islam between Sunni and, and Shia Muslims. Shia, Shia Muslims believe that the um, leader of the community should be a direct descendant of the Prophet. And that group of people, of Shiite Muslims, largely today live in Iran, and that's a minority group among um, Muslims. It's not the largest sect of Muslims. The other group is um, Sunni Muslims. They don't believe that the leader of the community has to be a lineal descendant of um, Muhammad. There was an institution called the Caliphate that was established within this sector of the Muslim community that that led the community, and there were a number of different colleagues um, who led the led the community, not just one person, but different colleagues in different areas of the world. And that caliphate continued until um, 1924, first under Arab and then under Turkish control, okay, from the time of the Prophet. Now, 
Um, from the time of, of, of Muhammad's death in 632, Islam experienced a golden era for about 100 years when it expanded all over um, North Africa, went into Spain, um, was in parts of Persia, as well as the Arabian Peninsula. That kind of um, religious and political unity is something that Islam has never again known, and it didn't last um, didn't last for very long. But it's looked at as a as a golden age within um, within Islam. Now, within the Sunni within Sunni Islam, um, there's a fundamentalism that developed in recent times in Saudi Arabia called Wahhabism. It's a fundamentalist sect of of Sunni. So, um, Bin Laden, being part of of, of the Saudi Arabian um, family. Um, of bin Laden's, um, grew up in Saudi Arabia and um, would have been exposed to this Wahhabi Islam. Um, it's fundamentalist. Um, now, bin Laden's chief gripes with the U.S. is that um, he didn't like their presence in Saudi Arabia after the first Gulf War, at the first Gulf War, and um, he publicly deplored the suffering of the Iraqi people after, um, after the first Gulf War with the sanctions and things of that character. Anyway, those are the public faces of his gripe against the U.S. I think it comes down to something much more personal myself, but that's just my speculation, and I will present that to you as something to be argued with. In any case, um, the extremist version of Islam um, subscribes to a view of history um, in which the decline from the Golden Age is uh, has to do with um, the departure of the rulers of the Muslim people and um, and the rulers and, and people who turned away from the true path of their religious calling and they left Islam vulnerable to encroaching foreign powers that were eager to steal their, their land and their wealth, etc., um, leading to the era of colonialism. Um, Fundamentalist Islam sees history as a struggle okay, between God and Satan, and there's only one um, one option: you either become a um, you either become a, a Muslim, or you subscribe to this state of barbarism, licentiousness, and unbelief that he um, points to the U.S. and and um, po- that he pointed to the U.S. Uh, as an example of, and uh, is the chief arc incarnation of in the world. Now. Um, Unprovoked mass murder, okay, was okay in his view. It's righteous defense of an embattled faith. He did not seem um, to think himself that such mass murder uh, was a form of barbarism, licentiousness, and unbelief. Um, however, in the name of in the name of Islam and in the name of this um, war between God and Satan, he believed that all Americans um, could be murdered or should be murdered by any Muslim anywhere in the world. Um, again, he was not a, he's not a Muslim scholar. He's not a Muslim authority of any kind. Um, he subscribed to um, writings by a man named Saeed Qutub, um, wrote sometime in the 1960s, I believe, and um, there were extremist views expressed um, there. Now, why, why, might, um, why might someone subscribe to such extremist views? Why was bin Laden's call attractive? Um, We'll, we'll discuss that at further length, but by the 1970s and 1980s, many of the economies in the Mideast had been um, had had been depleted. I mean, it was an econ- time of economic downturn, and that's significant because um, the conflict going on in that area of the world at that time, in the late 1970s, was the Afghanistan conflict in which the Soviet Union had had been occupying Afghanistan. In a time of economic decline, um, especially when um, Arabs were disillusioned both with their own efforts um, to produce prosperity for the people via nationalism, 
along lines of a secular uh, Western model after the colonial powers fell. And when also um, theocracies within Islam had failed to deliver on um, on their promise, there was kind of a vacuum of what, what to do and where to go. It became a breeding, breeding ground, um, bad economic times in the 1970s and 1980s after um, after Arabs were disillusioned with nationalism and political Islam, um, Afghanistan became a draw because there was this conflict going on. And young men out of work and out of hope um, were were drawn to conflict. That's always been a source of social disorder when you don't have young men employed or usefully occupied. Um, so that folks are aware, um, the Shia, there was a Shia theocracy in Iran um, during that time, particularly in the Shiite is, is strong in um, in Iran. All right, so from 1998 to 19 from 1988 to 1998, Bin Laden effectively built the Al Qaeda organization. It came out of um, it came after and it came out of the anti-Soviet effort that was um, funded by financial support network of Muslims around the world. Now, the Soviets had, um, there was a, a communist government in Afghanistan backed by the Soviets uh, starting in, say, 19, uh, 1978, 1979. So from 1979 to 1989, Afghanistan was a training ground for Islamic extremists as they tried to um, eject the, the Soviets from, from Afghanistan. Um, the anti-Soviet effort was funded by a financial support network by Muslims around the world. Um, mosques, schools, boarding houses were recruiting stations for people who went over there to um, um, to fight the Soviets in, in Afghanistan. And in 1988, there was victory for this Islamic um, jihad. So a huge organization had been built, and bin Laden had been part of that. He was one of those people who had um, gone to Afghanistan, and he helped to finance the venture. Of course, his family had great wealth in Saudi Arabia, to which he had access um, for that uh, for that purpose. Now, the U.S., independently of, of bin Laden, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, secretly backed the anti-Soviet effort. They funneled money through um, Pakistan, um, where they also trained people and armed people for the conflict. Now, the organization that bin Laden had successfully himself created for Afghanistan, or not by himself, but with others, um, the Muslim effort that had been funded around the world, um, this organization um, that funded the that funded the opposition to the Soviets in Afghanistan was not dissolved after 1988. Um, bin Laden became a leading figure. There was another man who'd, um, who'd also uh, been a leading figure, but he died, and then Bin Laden was left as the, um, as the leading person. Uh, he established, and he and his cohorts established um, Al-Qaeda as a sort of base a potential general headquarters for future jihad. Okay, they had built such a successful organization for um, opposition to the Soviets in Afghanistan that they um, did not want to dismantle it. This organization at that time had an intelligence component, a military committee, a financial committee, a political committee, um, and a committee in charge of media affairs and propaganda. Donna? Yes. 
I need to pause for a first break. This okay. is such a really gr- this is such a great uh, recitation of the things that happened um, in the history. I'm so enjoying this. But we need to take a short break, and I need to tell you about an event that is coming up here in Chicago. And I want to tell you that first, uh, the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism approved uh, the substance of the new threats and concern in drug use uh, that I'm going to tell you about in a second for four credits of professional responsibility credit. So um, on October 4th, this was approved. Four credits of professional responsibility credit are good. Um, This gives attorneys 11 days to register for four hours. Again, and the title is New Threats and Concerns in Drug Use, Abuse, and Addiction in the 21st Century. This course, produced by Leaded Limited, will take place on November 18th, uh, 2011, at the East Bank Club in Chicago between 12.30 p.m. and 5 o'clock p.m., You'll hear about the methods of drug testing, how they detect substances, what kind of treatment programs are available for abusers, and, most importantly, hear about how the courts are attempting to break the cycle of abuse. This program is going to take a talk about drug abuse and addiction and take it to very various kinds of substances, from prescription abuse to illegal substances, uh, also the long-term effects on individuals, their families, and the community around them. Uh, it will be of interest to attorneys in family law, criminal law, juvenile law, domestic violence, and other attorneys who may face personal issues with substance abuse. The Honorable Helen Berger, Associate Judge of Cook County Circuit Court, uh, Bruce Jeffries, owner of National Screening Center in Houston, and Edward Noakes, a community treatment provider, will review and discuss all phases of drug screening, treatment, and other remedies used by courts today. Bring your questions and be prepared to be educated, enlightened, and receive two-thirds of your professional responsibility credits at the same time. And this event, again, is being put on by Leaded Limited. You can contact uh, Nancy Minard or you can contact me for registration. My email is nick, N-I-C-K, at proservepr.com, which is P-R-O-S-E-R-V-E-P-R.com, or call me, 312-505-2604. There's a special discount for law students who want to attend, and uh, hardship... uh, opportunities are there also for uh, people who have questions about uh, registrations and fees and such. But anyways, a very, very good presentation. Nancy Minard and Let It Limited, Let it Limited uh, put on really great presentations. So uh, again, the title of this one is New Threats and Concerns in Drug Use, Abuse, and Addiction in the 21st Century. All right, so I just wanted to let you know about that. Uh, now back to our program with Donna Adler. Donna, we were just talking about how Al-Qaeda was established as a base for future jihad activity, and it sounds like they were pretty well organized. Well, they were pretty well organized at first. They had their ups and downs later, but they were organized, um, um, pretty well organized after um, after the Afghanistan conflict in the um, um, 1980s, or the 1979-1989. We need to depart from bin Laden for a moment and talk about other Islamist movements, especially, um, particularly particularly in Egypt, there was a strong Egyptian Islamicist movement. So Al-Qaeda is not the only um, um, Islamicist movement in the late um, 1980s. It, um, there, were two different, there were two different groups in Egypt. One was called the Islamic Group and um, the other the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Um, the Egyptian blind sheik Omar Abdel Rahman was the spiritual power behind the Islamicist movement in um, 
in Egypt. Now he now he's an interesting figure, and his um, his itinerary um, over the globe is a little bit interesting too. But we don't have time to cover um, everything. After spending time in and out of Egyptian prisons, prisons however, during the 1980s, um, you see his preaching had inspired Sadat's assassination. So he was a politically dangerous um, person. And after spending time in and out of Egyptian prison during the 1980s, he found refuge in the U.S. Okay, that goes back to one of our previous programs. How did this guy get into our country unnoticed? But he got into the U.S. He found refuge in the U.S. And from his headquarters in Jersey City, he distributed messages uh, calling for the murder of unbelievers. So he gets into the U.S., he settles down in Jersey City, you know, he acclimates himself to life here and joys our hospitality and sends messages out um, calling for the murder of unbelievers. Again, um, you know, who's asleep at the switch when these people get in here? Um, the most important Egyptian in the bin Laden circle was was Ayman al-Zawiri. He was a he was a surgeon, and he led a strong faction uh, of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. That was a, one of the groups in Egypt. Now he became Bin Laden's deputy when his organization merged with Bin Laden's organization um, later on. So his his uh, movement was important, and that's why I want to mention uh, mention him. Well, anyway, 1989, Bin Laden moved from Afghanistan after the Afghanistan conflict to Saudi Arabia, and Sudan became the base for al-Qaeda in Africa. In 1990, it's important to follow this itinerary, 1990, because at this point, Bin Laden was not, um, was not promoting um, anti-U.S. rhetoric. But in 1990, Iraq evaded Kuwait. Bin Laden proposed to the Saudi Arabian monarchy that it summon up a Mahujadeen for jihad to, to retake Kuwait. He was rebuffed, however, and um, the Saudis joined the U.S. coalition. Um, this seems to be a turning point in in, um, in Bin Laden's development. Okay, I think that what we have here is a very egotistical personality. He was rebuffed um, by his own, and he never forgave them, and he um, turned to use the U.S. as a scapegoat. Um, under the pretext of, um, of of religion, and I say pretext that may be too simplistic. He was uh, he was a fundamentalist, came from that fundamentalist camp, had that view of history, all of which could have been taken to justify his um, turn against um, his his um, vicious rhetoric against the U.S. following um, his rebuff by his own in the 1990s. And after the um, Saudis agreed to allow, that's my speculation. That's how I read this part of it. Um, after the Saudis had agreed to allow U.S. armed forces to be based in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, bin Laden and a number of Islamic clerics began publicly to denounce that arrangement um, because of the holy sites and holy sites of holy Islamic sites in um, Islam and um, the, the painting of the picture of the U.S. as, as infidels, etc. Um, the Saudi government exiled the clerics and undertook to silence bin Laden. They took away his passport among other things. But with with help from a dissonant member of the royal family, he got out of the country in April of 1991. By 1994, the Saudi government had frozen his financial assets and revoked his citizenship, so he was a man without a country by that time. In any case, um, after he left the country, left Saudi Arabia in April of 1991, he moved to the Sudan, and he set up a large and complex set 
of intertwined businesses and ter- terrorist organizational enterprises. Um, it involved numerous companies. It involved a global network of bank accounts, and it involved the use of non-governmental organizations as fronts. Um, He used NGOs as funnels and covers uh, to acquire explosives, technical technical equipment, and weapons. He established an Islamic army shura to serve as the coordinating body for a consortium of terrorist groups with whom he was forging alliances. It would be it would be wrong to say at that point he was he was the leader of all. What he was doing was building a network of alliances of people with um, similar views to his own, um, sometimes involving um, also independent people. It was composed of this consortium was composed of participating groups from all over the Middle East and also Africa and Southeast Asia. Uh, wherever he could basically find um you know people who were um who who were desperate and had no place to advance their lives i think um these would have been uh, fertile training grounds for um fertile recruiting grounds for um his network but a pattern uh, his pattern of expansion through building alliances extended to the US um there was an islamic organization called al kifa in the US that was an outpost and it had branch offices in um a number of different cities in the US and in, in different mosques it had a large office in the Farouk mosque in Brooklyn New York and other cities with branches of al kifa were um located in Atlanta Boston Chicago Pittsburgh and Tucson okay and he they he recruited in the US he began delivering diatribes against the US before he left Saudi Arabia in 1991 and he continued to do so in Sudan. Um I take this basically as the um you know the woman scorned <laughs> you know the sort of it's, it's that kind of paradigm. Um but it, as I said that may be too much too simplistic a picture. Um here's a man who had who had gotten a sense of his own success in Afghanistan and then he wasn't allowed to um to continue to develop um political leadership that he had enjoyed in Afghanistan in um in his own country um they had had rejected his help and he was sure that he could um uh, organize a jihad to get to 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 rebuff um, um Saddam and I in in Kuwait but he wasn't allowed the opportunity to do that instead it was a US and Saudi led coalition so he got cut out of the picture and I think that um there there must have been okay tons of resentment there but that's my speculation that's how I'm reading it in any case in early um 1992 the al qaeda leadership issued a fatwa calling for jihad against the western occupation of islamic lands okay so this is shortly after he leaves in in 1992 he singled out the us as a focus for attack in um language that resembled later later fatwas he he singled out us forces between 1992 and 1996 um during that era bin laden was well known as a senior figure among islamist extremists especially in egypt the arabian peninsula in afghanistan and pakistan in november of um 1995 a car bomb exploded outside of the soviet of the saudi us joint facility in Riyadh for training the Saudi National Guard. Five Americans and two officials from India were killed. The Saudi government arrested four perpetrators who admitted that they'd been inspired by bin Laden and they were executed. US intelligence later learned, okay, that um, the al-Qaeda leaders had decided a year earlier to attack a US target in Saudi Arabia and that they had shipped explosives to the peninsula for that purpose. So 
he was he was very intent on his um, targeting the U.S. after he left Saudi Arabia. In June of 1996, there was a, a truck bomb that detonated in um, the Kobar Towers residential complex in Dharan, Saudi Arabia, that housed U.S. Air Force personnel. 19 Americans were killed, 372 were wounded. Um, the operation was carried out by the Saudi Hezbollah organization that had received support from the government of Iran, um, and al-Qaeda played some role in that. In 1993, um, the bombing of the World Trade Center, al-Qaeda played a role in that. They plotted, okay, the same year to destroy landmarks in New York City. In 1995, um, they were involved in, in plotting a Manila air plot to blow up a dozen U.S. airliners over the Pacific. That plot never went forward. Um, they sought to buy, al-Qaeda sought to buy weapons-grade uranium from a Sudani military officer. And, in fact, there was a sale that took place, but the material was bogus, and um, the world could breathe a little bit more um, easily at the time, I suppose. But this is this is sort of a picture of an organization that would go to um, any extreme to get what it wanted, even down to buying uranium, um, uranium, um, uranium for um whatever ulterior purpose they could use that for. So you have to worry about these groups, I think, and um, atomic weapons, okay, if they're doing things like buying weapons-grade uranium. But there were ruthless and experienced operatives, such as um, Ramzi Youssef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who later were um, affiliated with um, bin Laden, but who were not necessarily at um, in, in the mid-'90s formal members of someone else's organization. They were traveling around the world, and they were joining projects supported by or linked to bin Laden, the blind sheik of their associates. And, of course, both of these men, um, Ramzi Yusuf and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, were involved in 9-11. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the mastermind behind the, behind the plot. Um, there were terrorist programs carried out by um, members of the al-Qaeda network that were not technically al-Qaeda operations in the 90s. Um, allied Islamist groups were focused on local battles. Bin Laden, though, was concentrated on the U.S. as a target. In late 1992, there was a deployment of U.S. troops to Somalia, and al-Qaeda leaders formulated a fatwa demanding the eviction of um, U.S. troops from Somalia. In December, and we eventually did leave um, Somalia, but in December, there were bombs that exploded at two, uh, December of 1992, bombs that exploded at two hotels in in Aden where U.S. troops um, stopped en route to Somalia. Two were killed, but no Americans were. The perpetrators of that um, event um, were a group from southern Yemen headed by um, Yemen, Yemeni members of bin Laden's Islamic Army Shura. So I think Yemen is a place, okay, uh, two two countries that, that, that came up repeatedly in um, the 9-11 Commission report were Yemen. There were, there were people hiding in Yemen who would, who would come from there. And um, there, were, there, were, there were, Iran was a supporter of, uh, of terrorism um, for the Al-Qaeda network. So Iran and Yemen. Um, more Iran, okay, than Yemen, but you had people in Yemen who were involved in in bin Laden's army shura. Some in the group had trained in, in al-Qaeda camps in Sudan. Al-Qaeda leaders set up a Nairobi cell, and they used it to send weapons and training to Somali warlords who were battling U.S. forces um, as operatives, and they were directly supervised by, uh, by al-Qaeda's military uh, leaders. So they were giving help to these um, Somalis who were Somali warlords. 
Their assistance led um, to the 1993 um, shoot-down of two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters by members of a Somali military group. The U.S. withdrew forces in um, early 1994, and, of course, al-Qaeda claimed the credit for that. Hey, Donna. Yes. It's time for another break, but I'll tell you what. It certainly sounds like that al-Qaeda is... Um, tied in with all of these different things that were going on. And just as a little bit of commentary, I know that when I was in 1993, I was a senior in high school, and I had not heard of al-Qaeda, just knew that there were things going on in the Middle East. And it's very interesting now to listen to you tell this uh, tale with all the, you know, it all is interwoven. So this is very interesting. So we're going to be right back and continue our discussion. But first, we're going to tell you about another event coming up. This event is also going to be taking place in the city of Chicago. It is titled Critical Financial Estate Planning and Asset Protection Planning Decisions to Make in 2011. The event sponsored by Today's Chicago Woman and the Metropolitan Club of Chicago. The event takes place on Thursday, October 27th from 7.30 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Panelists presenting at the event are, number one, Micheline Gordon. She's an attorney and of counsel to Anthony J. Madonia and Associates in Chicago. She's an attorney and estate planner who's been working with businesses, individuals, and their families to protect and preserve the transfer of wealth for over 25 years. Next, we have Susan Templeton, and she is the founder and managing partner of Stafford Wells Advisors, a Chicago wealth advisory firm who works with families and individuals in planning and investing for their future. Next, we have Henry Silverman, who's a Ph.D. from Roosevelt University faculty. He's an assistant professor in finance teaching and teaches courses in mutual fund investment, financial markets, and institutions, as well as international financial analysis and investment theory. So again, the title of the event is Critical Financial Estate Planning and Asset Protection Planning Decisions to Make in 2011. To register for the event, contact Micheline Gordon. The email is rsvptcw at madonia.com. Again, that's rsvptcw at madonia.com, which is M-A-D-O-N-I-A. Or you can simply call by uh, dialing area code 312-626-2916. Again, that's 312-626-2916. Before we get back to our show, I want to remind our listeners out there to please share our broadcast links in your social networks. Many people find our shows on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. We thank you all for your support in sharing our programming. Now back to our uh, riveting uh, historical tale of everything Al-Qaeda today in uh, show number four in our series with Donna Adler on uh, 9-11 and the 9-11 Commission Report, all the events that led up to it. Again, you can find the earlier shows by looking on our uh, Facebook page on Law Talk Radio. Just simply go to Facebook and search for Law Talk Radio in the search bar and you can uh, scroll through and find our earlier episodes. And um, back now to Donna Adler. Okay. Uh, yes. Okay. We're continuing our continuing our tale here of Al, Al Qaeda's development. Um, and that they were everywhere. <laughs> well, they had, they had a big network. Let's uh, put it that way. Yep. Al Qaeda itself was tar- was targeting the U.S. and some of the other organizations within the network. Where most of those were um, concentrated on um, local agendas. You had independent people as as. Um, We've noted um, Ramzi Yusuf and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who were just going around making a career of supporting <laughs> supporting different projects. Um, 
one wonders how how the money worked in these organizations um uh, because i i suspect that um that um, you know money and power are the chief things fueling these uh, and feeding uh, feeding on dissatisfaction um the men who were part of these organizations were were trying to succeed in what way was available to them how could they get prestige power and um have some kind of career, and so they chose this um, th- this path. And I'm not I'm not laughing because if if you have um, if you have situations of, of such desperation that people think that the um, only way to gain prominence if they've got too much testosterone and too much desire for ambition, um, and I'm not saying it's limited to limited to men, but there's got to be some kind of outlet for that um, that energy. And you wonder why we're not focusing on uh, creating more more. Um, uh, productive outlets for people in areas of the world that um, have so much uh, so much poverty, political dissatisfaction, educational malaise, or whatever. Uh, I mean, things have changed since the 1970s and 1980s, surely. But um, this is—it seems to me that if we really want to combat terrorism effectively, that we remove the reasons that um, people are attracted to it. Um, so I think that's one focus that that um, we should we should um, take we should take seriously. Um, that's a discussion down the line. Right now, we're just um, I'm going to concentrate or go back to um, the historical development of Al Qaeda. But in, in late 1991 or 92, there were discussions in Sudan between Al Qaeda and Iranian operatives that led to an informal agreement to cooperate um, in providing support. Um, even if only training, for actions that were going to be carried out primarily against Israel and the U.S. So this is coming from Iran. Um, now, at the time of the, um, after 9-11, you know, one wonders, why Iraq? Okay, well, why was all the talk about uh, Iraq? Okay, to which there weren't any realistic, um, credible links. Um, not not once did we uh, did we really get any, any serious discussion of um, how Iran had sponsored, um, had had been a state sponsor of, of terrorism, perhaps a state sponsor or maybe not a state sponsor, but it should have been investigated what was going on in Iran and why was there this Iranian support for al-Qaeda. Um, in, any, in any case, um, al-Qaeda operatives... Um, would would um, train and they would travel to Iran to receive training in explosives. So Iran's participation was very much um, um, an important part of the development of al-Qaeda at that time. In fall of 1993, um, there was another delegation that went to the Beka Valley in Lebanon for training in explosives. Um, Al-Qaeda contacts in Iran continued, okay, after 1992, they were willing, al-Qaeda was willing to explore possibilities at that period of time with Iraq, um, with Iraq-sponsored anti-Saddamist Islamists in Iraq's Kurdistan. So um, al-Qaeda was approaching people who were anti-Saddam um, to see what cooperation they might get from Iraq. But in late 1994 to 1995, they asked Iraq for space to establish training camps. Okay, so this, this could not have been with the anti-Saddam groups at that point. They sought assistance in procuring weapons, but there was no evidence in 1994 and 1995, 1994 and 1995, that Iraq um, responded to them. In 1998, Al-Qaeda, um, it wouldn't be until 1998 that Al-Qaeda undertook um, a major operation on its own. And after that point, um, Iraq was interested, but nothing came of that but talk. 
Al-Qaeda was uh, behind the attempted assassination of Hosni Mubarak in June of 1995. That was helped by Islamic, uh, by bin Laden and the Egyptian Islamic group. That was um, um, Zawiri's group. The Sudanese, okay, refused, okay, after this, to harbor uh, those who had been involved because the UN sanctioned Khartoum. Uh, when the UN sanctioned Khartoum, the Sudan government advised bin Laden that it could no longer give him um, sanctuary at the request of Libya. So bin Laden left Sudan for Afghanistan in May 19, 1996. Now, at this particular point in time, he was running out of financial resources. Um, remember, he had been cut off when he left Saudi Arabia. Um, in 1994, he'd been cut off. His financial assets had been frozen, and his citizenship had been revoked. He leaves, Khartou- he leaves Sudan for Afghanistan in May, uh, in May 19, 1996. Um, so the, the freezing of his assets, I think, had a substantial effect on him, and he had to learn how to build um, his finances um, independently of whatever assets he had in, in Saudi Arabia. So he was running out of steam, uh, running out of money by that time. Um, and he had to rebuild himself. So in, in, in he's he's figuring out ways after May 19th of 1996 um, for how to do this. He goes to Afghanistan. Now, the Taliban uh, were becoming a force in Afghanistan, um, uh, you know, by that time. Uh, Kabul and Jalalabad had fallen to them. So in September of 1996, he, uh, forged, ties with, uh, he forged ties with the Taliban. Now, though he went to Afghanistan, Pakistan was actually the country um, that was was key for him in allowing him to use Afghanistan as a base from which he could revive his um, ambitious enterprise war against the U.S. From the 1970s onward, religion had been an increasingly powerful force in, in Pakistani politics, um, and during his time in Sudan, bin Laden had maintained guest houses um, and training camps, both in Pakistan and Afghanistan. So he hadn't he hadn't severed his Afghanistan connections when he was in the Sudan, but he kept them going and he kept his eye on what was happening in Pakistan um, religiously. But Pakistan became friendly ground for him, and he was able to travel through Pakistan um, without a passport to get to Afghanistan. That was important because the Saudi government had uh, had um, had taken his passport away, so he could only go and use uh, use um, venues in which um, um, they would allow him to pass through without a passport. Now, I had mentioned Iraq. In mid-March of 1998, after the fatwa that we opened the show with in February of 1998, two al-Qaeda members went to Iraq and met with senior intelligence officials um, in Iraq. Um, They were friendly contacts, and they had a common hatred of the U.S., but um, there was no agreement um, to cooperate by Iraq in terrorist attacks against the the U.S. In any case, eventually, Eventually, al-Qaeda enjoyed strong financial support in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and he was also being helped at that point by um, by financiers in, in Saudi Arabia. So the three states that are emerging to me as especially problematic from the standpoint of bin Laden are Iran, Pakistan. Um, I had mentioned Yemen, but Yemen's involvement um, as, as a state is, is, is questionable. I mean, there were people in Yemen who... Um, who lived there, who became part of the network. But the the countries that are emerging as, as big problems are Pakistan, Iran, 
and Saudi Arabia itself, because even though they kicked them out, okay, they are the breeding ground for the fundamentalist Islamic extremism from which um, from which from which that produces a Bin Laden in the first place or helps to produce it. And even though they kicked him out of the country, they were still funding him, or people within Saudi Arabia were still funding him. And Apparently, not much was done. They did freeze his his assets, okay, so that was important. But he was still getting funding from Saudi Arabia, um, from from people within Saudi Arabia. So uh, Afghanistan, in in any case, was able to become al-Qaeda's home, and he was able to build a strong base there because he could go through Pakistan without having to have a passport, and he was getting financial support from um, these various um, um, these these various um, these these various groups um, and, and nations. He trained about ten to twenty thousand people um, during the period from 1996 to uh, you know to 1998, the fatwa. Um, so he publicly launched in February of 1998. This fatwa was uh, the public launch of a renewed and stronger Al Qaeda. Um, he had rebuilt his his fundraising network and. Um, he had a lot of rich men involved in the, in the jihad. He had become one of the rich men of the jihad movement, uh, but but he wasn't he wasn't the only one. Now, in summer of 1998, um, he made attacks independently. Al Qaeda made its own independent attacks and operations on U.S. embassies in East Africa. These were planned, directed, and executed by um, Al Qaeda directly under the supervision of Bin Laden and his chief aides. Okay, so they were um, in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. Um, the Nairobi Embassy in August of 1998 was um, destroyed completely. August 7, 1998, destroyed completely. Twelve Americans were killed. 201 other people were wounded. And in Dar es Salaam, 11 more people were killed. So two different um, embassies, two different cities in um, the summer of 1998. Now, as early as December of 1993, a team of al-Qaeda operatives had been um, casing targets in Nairobi for future attacks. They were led by um, Ali Muhammad, and again, I'm going back to another show. They were led by Ali Muhammad, who had been a former Egyptian army officer. He had moved to the United States in the mid-1980s. He had enlisted in the U.S. Army, and he had become an instructor at Fort Bragg. He provided guidance and training to extremists at the Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn that was one of the homes of this um, um, organization, um, in the U.S. that I'd mentioned earlier in the show. And um, he had some involvement in the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. So, again, who's who's asleep at the switch? Okay, this man gets into the U.S. Okay, does no one question that he was a former Egyptian Army officer? Did no one um, try to look into, into into what that meant, into his into his bigger connections? In any case, here's someone who gets in. Not only does he get in, he gets into the U.S. Army and he becomes an instructor at Fort Bragg. I find this an absolutely it's amazing. ridiculous, amazingly it's... ridiculous kind of development. How how could this have happened? You know, okay, how that... could this be? I it's <laughs> hindsight <laughs> hindsight you know I, it's um it's one it, that it is uh, hindsight but you know it's like come on well we'll be writing the the history books I, I'm sure that um, kids born today will be reading this in the history books and see how um, you know the United States might have been a little bit naive with security uh, yet at the same time we have had such a history of involvement in other countries but just 
again, a little naive, uh, I think, uh, for some of this. So we have a quick, uh, our last event message I want to tell you about, and then we're going to finish up our show. We have about uh, 12 minutes left. Um, our final event message I want to tell you about, the Chicago Lawyer Magazine's Off the Pages series has a presentation coming up on October 18th of this month, October 18th, um, it's titled Taking Diversity Seriously, and the following panels will be presented. Number one, being a woman in this legal industry, how do you navigate the challenging waters? And number two, a detailed look at local diversity statistics. In addition, Chicago Lawyer presents keynote speaker Aaron Reeves of NextGens. Reeves is a Chicago Lawyer columnist and diversity expert who will present, quote, a status report on diversity, end quote. This event will be held again on October 18th from 7.30 to 11 a.m at the University Club in Chicago. Early bird registration and more information are available if you call Ms. Olivia Clark at 312-644-4033. Again, her number, 312-644-4033, or email her at O-C-L-A-R-K-E at L-B-P-C dot com. Again, that's O-Clark, O-C-L-A-R-K-E at L-B-P-C dot com. MCLE credit should be pending for this event, and sponsorship opportunities should also still be available. Again, uh, before we get back to our program, we want to let you know if you have any questions or comments, you can please uh, submit them through the money uh, the Law Talk Radio fan page that is on Facebook. You can also uh, find us through our website at proservepr.com. There's a contact us page there, um, so you can do that as well. So uh, back to Donna Adler now. Donna, let's finish out talking about the. Um, you know, we we're just talking about our friend who was a former Egyptian army officer, you know, and then came to be a training facility at Fort Bragg. It's incredible. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to say I'm glad any of this happened, but I think that we're all going to be a little bit less naive uh, moving forward and dig a little deeper, as we've discussed on some of our uh, other shows uh, on this subject matter. So I can't wait for what else you have to tell me. We've got about 12 minutes left. Yeah, well, I'm not. I'm not sure. I would. I would say that the U.S. is naive about security. I would say that there was a lot of sloppiness. Okay, that that would allow a situation like that to develop, and and people who were um, not thinking in in um, creative mindsets um, within bureaucracies as they as they um, um, were letting people in. Um, I, I, so I'm not sure it's naivete. I think it's I think it's sloppiness. I think there's lack of communication. But um, I'm not sure that what we've done since 9/11 in uh, terms of legislation actually um, focuses on. I'm not sure it's fine-tuned enough. Um, I think some of it is is is. But we'll we'll have individual shows about about that. We can we can parse the legislation carefully and and say does this not go too far or is, does it go far enough or does it really focus in the right direction? We need to have a dialogue about these things. Uh, the U.S. citizenry needs to understand and have a dialogue about the laws passed since 9/11 so that they can make a determination for themselves whether it's all rightly focused. And that's why I'm glad we're going to have um, several more shows leading up to the to the uh, 9/11 recommendations, 9/11 Commission. Um, Recommendations, and then we can talk about legislation and court cases and focus and whether we're um, at least start a dialogue about whether we're headed in the right uh, right direction with this. Um, but a couple other things: um, uh, the um, Egyptian army officer wasn't wasn't all. Um, there was a U.S. citizen, Wadi Al Hagi, who had worked uh, with Bin Laden in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Now, this man was a U.S. citizen. Um, 
I don't have information whether he was U.S. born or whether he was naturalized, but um, he was a U.S. citizen. And in 1992, he went to Sudan, and he became one of al-Qaeda's major financial operatives. He was instrumental in attacks on the U.S. embassies in Africa. This is a U.S. citizen. Um, another important development, um, I wanted to tie up the uh, connection between al-Qaeda and the Egyptian Islamicist um, groups. In February of 1998, al-Qaeda merged with um, Zawiri's um, Egyptian Islamicist Jihad. Um, and actually, um, that's, that's all I have to say in terms of the lead-up to how al-Qaeda became so prominent in 1998. Um, I do want to make a, a couple points in anticipation of... Um, of um, our show next time, and that is that that by 1995, um, our national intelligence, the National Intelligence Estimate, um, a report, warned of a new type of terrorism. But many officials um, were not uh, were not really concentrating on. Um, many officials considered the work of terrorists um, to be. Uh, work as work as agents of states or uh, simply as domestic criminals. They weren't thinking in 1995. Um, our government was not thinking of terrorists as um, sort of these independent um, builders of networks who had their own financing and um, their own organizations. They were still thinking about terrorists as um, state agents or as um, domestic criminals. The United States did not before 9-11, adopt a clear strategic objective to eliminate al-Qaeda. There were efforts underway before 9-11 to, to, to get bin Laden, okay, none of which was, none of which was carried out. Um, but as late as, as late as 1997, um, as late as 1997, the CIA's counterterrorism group continued to describe bin Laden only as a terrorist financier. Um, there had been some major breakthroughs in intelligence, and we'll go through those next time. But this is where we're at. By late 1997, before the before the fatwa issued in 1998, as late as 1997, um, the CIA's counterterrorist group continued to describe bin Laden as a terrorist financier. Now, it seems to me, again, this is all hindsight, but if you've got an organization that delivers a, a, a fatwa in 1998 calling for the murder of Americans by any Muslim anywhere, um, the murder of Americans in any country, and, and saying it's the duty of Muslims to do this, okay? If you're getting that kind of message, okay, coming from um, in, in 1998, it's published in a, a London newspaper, okay? Uh, you need to pay attention to that. Now, I suppose if you weren't thinking of uh, a terrorism, a terrorist by 1998 as anything except um, a state agent or a domestic criminal, maybe you don't think that's very important. I'm not going to say they didn't think that was very important. I'm sure that made, um, and, and it is true that that made people lift their heads up. But what I'm saying is why did it take until 1998, or why as late as 1997 was bin Laden just described as a terrorist financier? How did, how did the lead-up to that fatwa occur without our being more alert to the development of that, that organization? I mean, we ourselves have been involved in, in Afghanistan um, um, in a secret way, um, helping to, to, to eject the Soviets from um, that area of the world when they had invaded Afghanistan. And um, I'm sure that our intelligence knew at the time that there were informal channels of, of, of assistance as well, that we were cooperating um, with, um, with, with others on a governmental level to get the, secretly though, to get the Soviets out of Afghanistan, that there were other actors 
in in Afghanistan, um, operating on their operating on their own more or less. Um, if if we knew that, and if we knew that there was a network there, uh, when we uh, when that conflict ended, I guess why did people fall asleep at the switch, or did they? Okay, what did what did we keep track of after that? In terms of who else was involved there, and if you knew that Bin Laden was an actor in that in that in that um, in that arena, in um, in Afghanistan in nineteen um, you know nineteen seventy nine through nineteen eighty nine, you knew he was an actor, and you knew um, he was he was important to sort of the informal effort um, to get um, non governmental. Okay, even though all of that was secret on a governmental. But if you knew that Bin Laden was a, was one of the key actors um, financing um, the effort against um, the Soviet Union, and then, okay, um, he goes back, okay, sort of with a feel for his own own power and ability, and then he gets rebuffed by his own government, okay, and then um, he goes elsewhere, and shortly after he gets rebuffed by his own government in terms of the um, um, invasion of, of Kuwait by Iraq. Then he starts spewing anti 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 government rhetoric. Why wouldn't you have your eyes on him immediately? Why wouldn't you follow him very very closely and follow what he was doing very very closely from that point on? I guess these would have been red flags for me. Well, they would be red flags for many people, and it's. I think that knowing is knowing is part of the battle here um and i suppose that we can learn from all of this uh, you know but that's still at the same time as we've uh, discussed and i've commented many times um it's there raised so many more questions you know how many other ways could some of these things be organized um i guess we realize and have notice and uh, knowledge that um of what can really happen so I look forward to our next show. We're going to talk a little bit more about the breaks and intelligence and maybe uh, have some suggestions on uh, what we could do next time around. I guess it's having the awareness that this can happen. Anything can happen to anyone, anytime, anywhere uh, is, you know, I suppose uh, something, you know. I'm looking forward to our our show, um, a few shows down the line, where we actually, um, with with, um, the shows behind us of – um, you know what we knew about it, what we were doing about Al Qaeda, with a context set. I'm looking forward to our show where we discuss the recommendations of the 9/11 Commission, and then um, that's our base from going forward with respect to legislation. Really take a look at those recommendations in light of what we've done together, and um, and have a discussion about um, you know what we think of the recommendations, and then what happened afterward. Um, after those recommendations came out by the 9/11 Commission report, what have we actually done? Um, what does our legislation actually say? What does it do? Is it focused? Um, is it too broad? Um, does it undermine civil liberties um, too greatly in the um, effort to protect national security? What measures are actually necessary um, to – I mean, I keep coming back to – I've, I've done a lot of immigration my, work myself over the last four or five years. I always try to um, know who I'm dealing with. And I have great sympathy for the plight of a lot of people in removal proceedings of today. But um, I do think that that one of the weak links here was 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 the was that was letting people in at the gate and not checking when they left. Um, that seems to be a consistent um, consistent theme when you look at at at, at the folks who um, became involved in um, who became involved in in um, terrorist activity preceding 9/11. Yeah. 
it's uh, this is gonna, I'm so glad that we're doing this series, and I I wish I had more. I'm just so, it's so fun to listen to um, all this history. And thank you, Donna, so much for putting uh, this chronology together and for all your available time. I really appreciate your help with the show. Well, I appreciate being on it. It's a, it's a um, show I've been wanting to, these are issues I've been wanting to address and call people's attention to as, as issues important for us to dialogue about as as Americans, okay, not as experts, not as not as, uh, as people in the know and intelligence, but as, as American right. citizens, as, as yep. people who live here, as, as, you know, permanent residents, as U.S. citizens. Um, what are we doing? Exactly, Where exactly. Where do we go from here? All right, well, we're going to continue with these series, and uh, please keep checking our uh, Facebook page for more. I also want to thank our guests and listeners for tuning in. Again, the Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our uh, our listeners uh, tips, tools, and news that you can use to be better informed. Uh, with our listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. As always, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and I thank you all for your time. <laughs>